the five, the second half, and uh, calling it Living in Light of His Return. Now, last time we saw that the church has not been called to experience the wrath of God. In Jesus' name, can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you. You can be seated. And we're going to begin going through 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the second half, and uh, calling it Living in Light of His Return. Now, last time we saw that the church has not been called to experience the wrath of God as it is revealed in the book of Revelations. Now, we knew the church would not experience the wrath of God for sin, right? Because our sin is forgiven, it's washed away. We will not be judged for sin. But what we shared last week is we have also not been appointed to wrath. That is the wrath that is revealed in the book of Revelation that will be poured out upon the earth in that terrible seven-year tribulation period. Here's the promise, and this is where we left off last week, for God did not appoint us to wrath, to tribulation wrath. The book of Revelation, the vials, the trumpets, so on and so forth. All of those terrible judgments, 21 of them, we're not called to experience that wrath. But what does it say? We will obtain what? Salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Now, each of the five chapters in 1 Thessalonians talks about the imminent return of Christ. And let's look at that. Chapter 1 deals with the Lord's coming, a saving truth. Chapter 2 looks at the Lord's coming, a stimulating truth. Chapter 3 touches on the Lord's coming, a stabilizing truth. And then chapter 4 involves the Lord's coming, a strengthening truth. And chapter 5, the Lord's coming, a sanctifying truth. So the whole letter has to do with the Lord's return. So isn't it amazing that churches in our day, some of them are saying, well, that's not literal. That's not what he meant. When all through the Bible, all through the New Testament, the anticipation of Jesus' return is huge. It's huge. Now this time we're going to explore what the Bible says about how the Christian is to live in light of the Lord's return, or as Francis Schaeffer put it, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Paul closes out his letter with a series of beautiful exhortations. So we're just going to skip across them. We're just going to move across these exhortations one after another. They're like diamonds, sparkling diamonds, every one of them. And they're very practical exhortations and advice on how we're to live in light of the fact that at any moment the trumpet could blow and Jesus could return. Now, first he addresses church leaders and what they do, what their function is. He says, dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. I really like reading this one. <laughs> I'm in a good mood tonight. Y'all are just going to have to laugh with me. I, I'm just, I'm doing all right. Now, what does he say? Honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Now, here's what he's saying. The properly appointed leaders of the local church 
are vested with authority. They have authority from God. Here's what the church is not. It's not a dictatorship. Never should be. And it's not a democracy either. What is a local church? It's a theocracy. The Holy Spirit is the one that qualifies and calls people to roles of leadership. Nobody chooses themselves. If you choose yourself to be in spiritual leadership, you have made a huge mistake. God chooses. As a matter of fact, it says the Holy Spirit places people in the church as it pleases Him, the Him being the Holy Spirit, because the Spirit is a He, not a force, not an it, but a He. And what does He do? The Holy Spirit moves throughout the body of Christ and touches certain people for certain functions. And Paul told us in Ephesians, he gives, evang- he gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And they are selected not by men. They are affirmed by men, but they are selected by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Very, very important. Now, these leaders are to be known They are to be recognized, acknowledged, appreciated, and valued. Now, spiritual people will quickly recognize those whom God has raised up to evangelize, teach, and pastor the flock. There is an amen inside of the hearts of God's people when they are exposed to or introduced to someone who God has anointed for a certain function, like a pastor. I never thought that I would pastor. I, I went and just led a, a Bible study once uh, many, many years ago when I was like um, 28 years old. And many years ago, I was asked to go just lead a little Sunday morning Bible study. And I didn't have much else to do on Sunday mornings, going to church, but I wanted to preach real bad. So I went. And then they asked me back and asked me back again and again. And one Sunday, one of them said, Pastor Jeff, we hear the shepherd's voice in you. Will you start a church? Well, I didn't walk. I ran the other direction because I thought I was called to be an evangelist. Just knew I was going to be an evangelist. Had all my letters and letterheads and my 501c3 and my letters of recommendation from every big, big gun that I knew. And I sent out a whole bunch of them and to get one invitation. But I kept getting invited down to this little area to minister to the flock of God. And it began to grow and it mushroomed into the first church that we planted. And they recognized what God laid his hand on me to do. I didn't choose me. Never would I have chosen me to do this. And anybody that knew me wouldn't have chosen me to do this. My mother is still in shock. So... Spiritual people recognize that those who refuse to acknowledge God's leadership label themselves as carnal, according to the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. So the natural man doesn't recognize these things, but spiritual people will look at a person and go, I witness to what they're doing. It's an amen on the inside. Now, Paul went on to say, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
people's callings, people's abilities, spiritually discern. All right? Now, the scope and the sphere of the labors and authority of church leaders is spiritual. A church elder or pastor, his calling is of a spiritual nature. The characteristic of a true spiritual leader is that he labors, and not just labors, but he labors in the Word and in prayer. That's his field of labor, and that is where God has called him. The, the word labor there means toil that results in weariness. See, a lot of people think pastors just go preach on Sunday and golf the rest of the week. There might be some of those. I ain't one of them. I study constantly. I'm always in the Word. Why? Because I'm grazing the, the green pastures of God's Word for food for the sheep. And I'm always on the hunt. I'm always reading, always ingesting, always seeking it out. And you know what? I love it. I love doing it. Done it since I was 18. Started ministering to God's people at 18 years old, never have quit. 40 years, I still can't believe it. Their labor is in prayer and the Word of God. Look what the book of Acts says about the, the apostles. They told their church, the Jerusalem church, they said, therefore, brethren, we want you to seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. What business? Practical things like taking care of the needs of the needy in a practical way. And here is the birth of deacons right here in this passage because they chose Stephen they chose Philip and they chose five others and they were the first diaconos of the church deacons of the church and they began to wait on the widows and take care of the practical things why but we will give ourselves continually to what everyone prayer and to what? The ministry of the word. So any pastor or elder, this should be their focus, prayer and the ministry of the word. They should not have to wear 30 different hats where they're so worn out, they have no time to pray and no time to get into the word because then you suffer. You end up anemic. Now, Paul goes on to exhort in chapter five, verse 13, he says, show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. So there you go. Now, why should that be? Hebrews expands on this. Why there should be some respect and some honor. Here's why. The church is exhorted in Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leader, leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief. Why? Because that'll be unprofitable for you. You know why? Because a grieved pastor is going to produce grieved, anemic people. See, it's the same thing with a husband and wife. It says to the husband... Love your wife as Christ loved the church. He that loves his wife loves himself. If you, as a husband, treat your wife badly, you're treating you badly. If she's suffering, you're going to suffer. If she's not doing well, you're not going to do well. It's reciprocal because 
one plus one equals one in marriage. So to treat the wife as Jesus loved the church is to care about yourself because a grieved wife is going to produce a grieved household. And as they say, if mama ain't happy, <laughs> let every man in here say, ain't nobody happy. It's the same way with the church and its leadership. If the leadership is constantly criticized and shot at and undermined and all of that, well, then he says, it's not, it's not profitable for you. Why? Because if they're grieved all the time, they're not going to be in the Word. They're not going to be in prayer. They're going to be hurting. And, and there's hurting preachers all over America, let me assure you. So then he goes on in verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are, uh-oh, in church. What is the word? Unruly. Now, he's telling the Thessalonians, here's how I want you to handle house business, church business. Let's get practical. I want you to warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, and be patient with all. That verse pops with truth. And let me just deal with it one at a time. Warn the unruly. Now, warn means to exert positive pressure. You're exerting positive pressure on somebody, and what does unruly mean? Out of God's order. It's somebody who's in sin, or it's somebody who's carding an attitude, or it's somebody who's being real critical, or it's somebody that, that's causing disunity or discord in the church. There's a problem there. They're being unruly. They're out of God's order. They're not walking in the Word. And so he says to the Thessalonians and to us, he says, I want you to warn them. I want you to deal with it. Don't act like it's not there. Don't stick your head in the hole in the ground like an ostrich and say, well, you know, they're just contrary. They've always been contrary and it won't go any further. No, because an unruly person will eventually affect a lot of people. So he says, I want you to understand that I want you to deal with it. You're to deal with it. The Holy Spirit here, who is the writer of the Word of God through men, tells church leadership to exercise authority in a disciplinary fashion. That's what he's saying to do. Now, this includes the solemn process of binding and loosing as found in Matthew 18, 15 and 20. We charismatics love that you will bind on what you bind on earth to be bound in heaven, loose on earth, loose in heaven. And we love using that when it comes to demon spirits and all of that. But this is not talking about that. Matthew 18, 15 to 20. If your brother offends you, go to him. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't hear you, then take two or three more and go to him. If he doesn't hear them, then take it to the church. And if they don't hear the church, then let them be to you as a publican and a sinner. In other words, excommunicate them. Then he says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The context of that passage is church discipline, not binding demons. Okay? If in the final analysis that person refuses the repeated attempts of the church to correct and restore him, he's to be excommunicated. Now, not for necessarily for good, but notice 
Notice the impact when I even say those words in, in this room, and I guarantee you by radio, because political correctness has so warped our thinking that when we read those words, when I say to you they should be excommunicated, some of you immediately think, but that's not love. That's not Jesus. And see, we're so used to political correctness, which teaches us sloppy agape, greasy grace. And we don't understand that if you love someone, you will discipline them. If you don't love them, you won't. Listen, how many children who went bad are sitting in prison right now or who have hellacious lives right now as adults will tell you, I wish my parents had loved me enough to discipline me. So don't say to me, well, it's love if you don't discipline somebody or because you love them, you shouldn't. No, if you love them, if they need it, you will discipline them. In 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. Paul got wind of it. Paul writes to the Corinthian church and says, what in the world is wrong with you that you haven't dealt with this? You know what the Corinthian church was doing? They were, they were patting themselves on the back for being loving. For saying, well, we, we're, we're just loving. So, we're, you know, we're just going to let bygones be bygones and que sera, sera, and kumbaya, and let, let everybody just kind of do what they want. Paul said, are you crazy? Don't you know that a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump? If you let this go on, what he's doing is going to influence your whole church. He said, I'm with you in the spirit. I want you to remove him. And here's what he said. Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That his spirit might be saved. His whole intention was to restore the man. We hear talk like that and we say, in this day and age of apostasy and hatred of authority and rebellion, we say, well, that's just not the kind of church I want to be in. I want to be in the kind of church you can just be yourself. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean be yourself as in sin and in whatever way you want and get away with it? You want to be in church that'll tickle your ear and, and talk to you about success and making money and, and, and having a Cadillac and a great big house? Or do you want to be in a church that's going to develop you in Jesus? So, as I've already said, this is the original meaning of the passage. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The church has the authority to excommunicate, but only for the purpose of that person coming to their senses and experiencing restoration back into the fellowship if, hopefully, they repent. But there comes a point where sin must be dealt with in a fellowship. If somebody has been corrected, then corrected by, by one, then corrected by three, then corrected by the whole church, and they still say, no, you know, I'm going to live the way I want, do what I want, go where I want, then the church has got to make a decision. Paul said of the fallen brother in 1 Corinthians 5, 4 and 5, who was sleeping with his stepmother, 
He said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus be present. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day that the Lord returns. It was all to get him to turn back. When a person is removed from fellowship, he is thrust into the world, which is what Paul means by being turned over to Satan. He wasn't saying, I'm going to go hand him to the devil like I got a relationship with the devil. And here, Mr. Devil, here's this guy. He's just saying, when you remove him from the church and he's thrust into the world, the world is, in essence, Satan. The whole world system is satanic. He's the God of this world, little g. Okay? Now, the hope is that he'll repent and be restored. And the offender in 2 Corinthians was restored. That's exactly what happened to him. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. He said, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient. In other words, okay, he repented. Enough is enough. Now go love on him. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Listen carefully to me. We're great at 1 Corinthianing people. We're terrible at 2 Corinthianing people. Oh, yeah, we'll get on somebody about that sin, and we'll kick them out. But then what do we do with them? Do we go hunt them down again? Do we stay with them? Do we check on them? Do we ask them how they're doing it? Do we try to pray with them? Do we, do we just let them go and never deal with them again? No. Paul said, I want you to put him out there in the world, let him realize what he's done. But then word came to Paul, he has repented. So Paul said, go find him, go love on him, receive him back. You who are st- spiritual, Galatians 6, 1 says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness considering yourself lest you also be tempted so we are to deal with sin for the sake of the sinner that they will repent be restored and be brought back so that their spirit is saved isn't that right I believe the average local church today is weak and divided because it has abandoned sound doctrine and has lost the will and the power to carry out effective spiritual discipline. We don't discipline anymore. Matter of fact, and I had to write this, I had to put this down. Instead, churches are catering to the sins of its members and even sanctioning them. We've lost the will to deal with sin. What would you think of a doctor that lost the will to deal with cancer? or lost the will to deal with heart disease and left you to yourself. Well, you know, if you got the sniffles, come see me. Otherwise, I don't want to fool with it. You would die. You would die. And sinners will die in their sins if the church doesn't deal with sin. Don't smile at me. This is real. Okay? This is the way it is. All right, let's move on to something a little bit happier. Next, Paul says, read it with me, comfort 
the faint-hearted. Now, comfort means to console, to move up next to somebody, put your arm around them, and console them. But what does he mean, faint-hearted? I love this. The word literally means those of little soul. Those of little soul. It speaks of the despondent, the dispirited. These are, are, are the opposite of the unruly. The unruly are usually forceful and willful and stubborn and stiff-necked, but the faint-hearted are those that lack confidence in themselves. They can't take criticism. Their feelings are easily hurt. They're very delicate creatures, the faint-hearted. They really are. And they worry about the future. Paul says, speak with them. Encourage them regularly. This is the person that's always under it that's always shook up, all shook up. This is the person that's always, what should I about this and what should I about that? And oh no, and oh my gosh, the future of the world's coming to an end. The sky is falling. What are we going to do? The Bible says that we're to get up to them, put our arm around them and say, hey, let me exhort you. It's going to be okay. Because one day that faint-hearted person can become a lion so instead of going, oh, here they come again, and I know what I'm going to hear. I'm going to hear about how terrible everything is, and, you know, what are we going to do? And it's all dark and murky and bloody and war, and we've lost control. And, the, and you run the other way? Just swallow hard, say, I put on Jesus. Come here, you. Be quiet. I'm just going to hug you for a minute. And, and love on them. And encourage them. <laughs> okay. Then he says we are to do what? Uphold the weak. Now uphold means to sustain. And the weak are those without adequate strength. We, there's plenty of those in the church. They are the dependent. The church is to care for them. Stay close by them. And even cleave to them. Instead of shirking them because they're weak. Um, any church has its, its large number of what I would call the weak. That is, those that really need the help of other people to get by. Uh, they're in hospitals. A lot of times they're the senior citizens of the church. They just don't have the energy they used to have or some affliction has taken them down. And what does the Bible says? Instead of shirking them or putting them off to one side and focusing only on the young, he says, I want you to go up to them and I want you to sustain them. This is Christian living in the church. I want you to reject them. I want you to sustain them. Now, let me ask you a question. When you have been weak, and we've all been there, how many of you have ever awakened one day and said, I don't think I can take another step. I'm down. I'm hurting. You ever been there? And what did Jesus do with, with you and me? He came in by his spirit. He gave us an encouraging word. He picked us up. He sustained us. He breathed fresh life into us. Got a skip back in our step, a smile back on our face, a gleam back in our eye. Isn't that what he did? You know what I'm saying? Here they come. And, 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 it's, and you go, I'm, I don't want to try to be patient. I want to flee. I want to run. Where is the exit door? Here they come. That person that seems to be custom designed to rub me the wrong way. He says, I want you to be long-tempered instead of short-tempered, and all. 
Some people are the chalkboard. No, you're the chalkboard and they're the fingernails. You know what I'm saying? Here they come. And, 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 it's, and you go, I'm, I don't want to try to be patient. I want to flee. I want to run. Where is the exit door? Here they come. That person that seems to be custom designed to rub me the wrong way. He says, I want you to be long-tempered instead of short-tempered. You ever seen a mama dog with new puppies? Have you ever watched that mama dog? And, and those puppies are crawling all over her. They're crawling on her face. They're grabbing her ears and chewing on them. They, they are, they are, they, she can't sleep. They're endlessly all over her, harassing her. And, and, and you think, at any second now, I'm going to watch her eat one of them. Because it never ends. They're just all over her all the time. But what does she do? She yawns. She just lays there. It's okay. Long-suffering. They'll grow up. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, I can hear them talking to me, these, these mama dogs. And, you go, I don't know how they're doing this. They can't sleep. They can't eat. They can't do anything because these pups are all over them. But they just take it in stride. They're, they're long-tempered. So you walk into a church, all kinds of different kinds of people here. It is a potpourri of different personalities, backgrounds, temperaments, professions, races, you name it. And God puts us all next to each other in the same room. And says, now love each other. And you look around. I see visitors come in. First thing they do, they want to see if any of their kind are in here. <laughs> Whatever they happen to be, they immediately look for their own kind. Because we feel best with our own kind. But guess what? Heaven's going to be black, white, yellow, red. Heaven is going to be. Heaven's going to be white collar, blue collar. Heaven's going to be all different types and Hate to break it to you, but some of the people that you have a problem with here, they're going to be there. And I know what you're saying, Lord, just don't build my house next to theirs. Please don't do that to me. It's heaven. But the Lord says, I'm saving people from every background in life. I'm saving people. I'm drawing people in the Fort Worth area and Johnson County area and Arlington area all around. I'm drawing them from everywhere. And it is going to be a stew. Now you're going to have to learn to bear long with the differences. Okay. In fact, the church is one of the few places on earth where you're going to find a mix of people under the same roof, all in different stages of spiritual development like you do here on a Sunday morning. People say to me, wow, you've got a really, uh, uh, your church is really a, a mix of all kinds of different people. And I say, isn't that what heaven's going to look like? Isn't it sad that Sunday is still, in some places, the most segregated day of the week? It ought to be when everybody is together because everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Everyone. Now, without long-suffering and patience, we would be in a hotbed of conflict all the time. Without long-suffering and 
patient. So put on love, put on Jesus. Now, Paul goes on to write that not only are people to be helped, but there are principles to be held. Here they are, verse 15. Can you read it with me? See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. I don't like that verse. I wish that verse wasn't there sometimes. I wish it said, they whooped you, you go whoop them. (laughs) Haven't you ever wished it was there? I, I think the hardest thing Jesus ever told us to do is love those who hate your guts. How do you do that? You gotta put on Jesus. Now notice that God says something very important here. He tells you and me, I hold the corner on the vengeance market. Don't you dare go avenge yourself because I hold the corner on the vengeance market. He says in Romans, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, it won't always be because some people don't want to get along. But if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with how many men? If it's possible. He says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. It's mine. It's not yours. I will repay. He doesn't say I might. Now here's our problem. Somebody hurts us, offends us. We decide to give it over to God. And bless God if he hadn't judged them by the next day. We say, where are you? you're, You're taking too long. God says, here's what God literally says. I want you to get out of the way. Because if you decide to take vengeance on yourself, well, I'll show them. I'll show them. I know where they live. I know where they work. I'll show them. If you do that, you're in the way. God says, you're going to have to get out of the way. As long as you're doing it, I can't do it. You've got to get out of the way and give place to the wrath of God. Now, it may take a year. It may take several years. It won't be your timing. It won't be your way. But God says, vengeance is mine. So you've got to get out of the way because you will be wronged in this world. You will be done dirty in this world somewhere along the way. Because it's a spiritual warfare. It's a battleground, this world. So somebody's going to hurt you, say something against you, betray you, wrong you, stab you in the back, do something contrary to you that hurts you and offends you and wrongs you. We all get to practice that verse. And boy, is it hard to do. Because you want to go tell them what for or show them what for. But he says, "Uh uh-uh. Get out of the way. Move, move, and give them to me. And just go focus on my calling on your life. And in my way and in my time, I will take care of it. That's what he says. Is that not what he says? That's what he says. You mean I shouldn't stick up for myself? Well, I think there are times you do have to explain yourself. You may need to defend yourself against false accusations, something like that. But as far as real vengeance, Clint Eastwood vengeance, 
the Terminator kind of vengeance, the exterminator, all those things Schwarzenegger has been. Terminator, exterminator, all these things. Don't do it. Leave it to God. Now, Peter added a promise. If we will obey God in this area, look what Peter said. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted, be courteous. Uh, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Not getting into a word war with them, but on the contrary, blessing. Blessing them. Praying for their healing. Don't let anybody make you hate them. Knowing that you were called to this. To what? That you would inherit a blessing. See, if you'll get out of the way, give your enemies to God. Say, Lord, take care of it. And pray for them. God says you're going to inherit a blessing. I don't know what the blessing is, but say it with me, that we may inherit a blessing. We're to be like Jesus, not carnal men. Jesus left all judgment and vengeance to God. Now Paul's pointed demands now get shorter and sharper than ever. He has a word to say about praise. Say it with me. Rejoice evermore. Isn't that great? The Lord is coming. Rejoice. The praising person is the prevailing person as we preached on Sunday. So never give up your praise. Can you say that with me? Never give up your praise. Rejoice evermore. Now, next Paul mentions prayer. He says, pray without stopping, without ceasing. Verse 17. The door to the throne room of the universe has been thrown wide open. Take full advantage of it. Amen? God says, come on in. Stay as long as you like. Talk about anything you want to. I'm listening. Pray at the bus stop. Pray in the elevator. Pray on the highway. Pray at all times. And I would say praise and pray in every one of those situations. Practice the presence of God. Amen? Now, then we are to be thankful in everything. Give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you here. It's November. It's Thanksgiving time. But we ought to do it all year long. There's always something to be thankful about. I don't care what your situation is. And he didn't say for everything give thanks because everything is not from God. That is, he doesn't make you sick. He doesn't cause an evil person to assault you. No, the devil does that. But he said not for everything, but in the presence of everything life throws at you. Be a thanker. Be a prayer. Be a thanker. Be a praiser. Be a prayer, be a thanker, be a praiser. If you're a prayer and a thanker and a praiser, the devil will never, never take you out. And neither will circumstances. Be a prayer, be a praiser, be a thanker. The fact is that we might find ourselves in very harsh circumstances. Facing persecution, that's coming. I hope you know that. That's increasing in the West. Or pressured by events beyond our control. we got a choice. We can complain, worry, or rebel. Or we can thank God that he is still on the throne, that he is too wise to make any mistakes. He's too loving to be unkind. And he's too powerful to be thwarted in his purposes for us. He will make everything work together for the good of those who love him. 
but you got to be a prayer. You got to be a praiser. You got to be a thanker. Thanking is for something he's done. Praising is for who he is. And you give everything to him in prayer. And I'm telling you, God will carry you through any valley if you'll practice those three things. And that's a lifelong challenge. Now, Paul next has something to say about presumption. And we're going to close uh, with this. Quench not the Spirit. Please remember, church, the Holy Spirit is a person. He can be resisted, he can be grieved, and he can be quenched, just like a person. The unsaved can resist the Holy Spirit to their own destruction. That is the unpardonable sin. You as a believer cannot commit the unpardonable sin. Let me ease your mind. The unpardonable sin is when the Holy Ghost knocks on the door of your heart all of your life and you turn him away and you turn the offer away. That will never be forgiven. You will perish in your sin. Stephen said to the spiritual leaders of his day, quote, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you do always do what, everyone? Resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. And they killed him for saying that. But believers, on the other hand, can grieve the Spirit. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, quote, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. The word grieve is a love word. You can't grieve somebody who doesn't love you. A church can quench the Holy Spirit. That scares me. The word quench, he said, don't quench the Holy Spirit. It means to extinguish a fire. You as an individual can extinguish the fire of the Holy Spirit in you. Or a church can extinguish the fire that is in them. And that would be one of my biggest fears as a pastor. We all know churches that were once on fire for God, don't we? Souls were being saved, lives were being blessed, then false doctrine or squabbles or divisions or jealousies or immorality raised its head and the fire was doused. Now they're just a shadow of what they used to be because what made them great was not a building and it wasn't necessarily the people in it. It was the move of God. That's what made them great. It was the move of God. And somehow, some way, the devil succeeded in extinguishing the fire. He says, not only that, don't despise prophecies. We're not to treat prophecies with contempt, verse 20. Now, the reference, when it uses prophecy here, it seems to be talking about preaching. In this context, it is the gift of communicating and enforcing revealed truth. It is not foretelling, it's forthtelling that he's talking about. Don't despise forthtelling, the preaching of the truth. They were not to undervalue preaching in comparison with other things. It's possible that in Thessalonica, as appears to have been the case in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, there were those who regarded the power of working miracles or speaking in tongues as a much more important endowment than that of stating the truths of the faith in language clearly understood. So he says, I don't want you to kick the clear preaching of the word out for signs and wonders. 
The most important thing is the declaration of the truth. We should test all things, hold fast what is good. We are to analyze, examine, check to see if something is of God. Don't gullibly swallow everything you hear. Run it through the sifter of the Scriptures. If it's good, hold it tight. If it's bad, throw it out. I think the church is in a discernment crisis right now. I believe the church in the West is in a discernment crisis. We're not discerning evil. Many denominations can't tell good from bad anymore. He says, you better test everything you hear, everything you're exposed to. Is it of God? Does it line up with the Word of God? Is this valid? Is this sound? So that you're not taken in by false teaching, immorality, any one of the number of things that are out there. Out there all the time. Now he has a final word about propriety and we're going to close. Verse 22. Can you read this with me? Abstain from all appearance of evil. The word for abstain means to hold yourself back from. The Christian is to be careful about being placed in a situation where our testimony might be compromised by a wrong appearance of things. Okay? Very, very important. Now, next time, we're going to close out chapter 5 with verses 23 to 28, and then I'm going to share a totally comprehensive look at the rapture and the second coming of Christ. What are the differences between the two? Where do people go when they die? And God's sanctifying work in our life in preparation for his return. Don't miss next time. We're going to learn about the rapture and the second coming in a powerful way. Let's stand together, can we? Amen. Amen. Father, we just thank you right now that God is good. And Lord, you've given us these exhortations that we would live wisely, that we would know how to behave ourselves in the house of God. That Lord, you would speak to us and guide us and help us to walk in a way that honors you. And Lord, we're living in an apostate generation. Help us to shine like lights. And we pray your hand on this church tonight. Lord, you will anoint us and grace us. We humbly pray to honor you in this place and to reach the world with the truth of your word. For we know the time is short and Jesus is at the door. In your mighty name, let's worship a moment right before we go. Okay.